guys, and welcome to Pickles and Vodka, the unfiltered mental health podcast dedicated to sharing the stories of people like you and me who are struggling but might not have an outlet to share about it. To be honest, I have been working on this intro for like 10 minutes now, and I keep losing the words to continue because it's so hot in my room. And by hot, I mean like 84 degrees, but uh, this is Seattle we're talking about, and people here don't believe in air conditioning. So I'm going to keep this short uh, and finish editing this in a nice, cool coffee shop later on. Um, But first, I want to talk about something that happened this week real quick, which was my 27th birthday. I don't know if a lot of you know, but this year I wasn't even sure I was going to reach my birthday alive. And so it it definitely carried some mixed connotations. Um, I'm, I'm someone who's always hated her birthday. Even as a kid, I just, it gave me so much anxiety and I've always hated the pressure that society puts on you to, you know, do something big or see a lot of people because, you know, not everyone has the time or the friends or the energy for that. So um, I was expressing my concerns to my therapist and he said, if you don't feel like doing anything, then don't do anything. Just enjoy yourself and have a quiet day. And so um, that's exactly what I did. I went hiking. I dyed my hair. I did a little bit of cleaning because that's what I do. It was honestly such a lovely day. I barely spoke to a single person outside of all the people who called me and texted me. And yeah, I would uh, 10 out of 10 recommend that approach if you're someone like me who hates their birthday. I have some great guests lined up in the following weeks. And as always, if you have a topic that you have experience with uh, in regards to mental health, hit me up at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com or on any of my social media links, and I will be happy to host you as a guest. Really excited for this week's guest. Uh, She's going to be talking about OCD and all the ways it affects her life and her various coping methods. You guys are going to love her. Also, I want to give myself a little shout out because this week the podcast hit 500 downloads, which to some might not be a lot, but you know I was freaking out about it. So thank you guys for listening. Um, I didn't really know where this would go when I started it, but the fact that it's still around and that there's people invested in it makes me so happy and I wouldn't be here without you guys. So thank you. All right. Here's my interview with Diana. I hope you guys enjoy. Hey, can you hear me okay? Uh, Yeah, good. Can you hear me? Yes. And more importantly, I hit record this time. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Um, In case you guys didn't hear the last time that we tried recording an episode, I didn't hit record until we were like a half hour into our conversation. Yeah. And by then we had to say goodbye. So it was really sad. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a good uh, practice run. Yeah. So, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> um, for having me. Of course. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell the listeners what you do, how old you are, that kind of thing? All right. Um, well, I'm going to be like walking circles around my neighborhood because I'm a, a walk and talker. Um, so, Perfect. if you hear like street noises or bird noises, it's because I'm taking a walk. But, all right. Um, my name is Diana. I'm 23 years old. I was born and raised in Chicago, then I went to New York for college, and when I graduated, I came back to Chicago, where I now live and work. Um, I work as a technician in a biochemical engineering research lab. And, and um, is that what you studied in college? Yeah, my, my major was biochemistry. Okay. Um, so this is very within my field. And then in two short months, I'm going to be moving to Southern California to start graduate school. Uh-huh. And um, molecular molecular biosciences. <laughs> How do you feel about moving so far away? Um, I want to, because uh, you know my family's here in Chicago, and like you know there there are pluses and minuses to family, and I think um, it's time for me to be a real adult and go far far away. Um, and also like I'm just excited about moving to California. Like yeah, so I've, I've visited there a few times, but I've never like lived there. So um, you know the land where. Uh, Rent is expensive and weed is cheap. <laughs> I, I still haven't been to any part of California. 
Um, I, I visited the university, like to interview for the graduate program, I visited the university and like I visited in February and it was basically a tropical paradise. Oh my God. Like this was um, right after the polar vortex in Chicago last February. So like I had just endured um, negative 50, five zero degrees oh, Fahrenheit. Oh my God. And then like a week or two later, I fly over to California and everyone there is wearing like puffer jackets and long sleeves and long pants. Cause it's like 60 <laughs> instead of 80. And like, you guys, like, do you not understand that you are living in a tropical paradise right now? Like, it's so fucking beautiful. Like I'm on vacation. They're like, we're having a really cold winter. Oh my God. Shut up. <laughs> I, I'm from, I grew up in Chicago too, and so yeah. I feel you. Like, you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Just you wait. don't know what winter is. Exactly. Um, so, this is a mental health podcast. Yes. Would you like to talk a little bit about your mental health journey? I guess uh, my diagnosis is OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, along with that, I get some really fun symptoms of like depression and anxiety, and um, I've had some struggles with uh, self-harm and substance abuse in the past. And all of that, I think, like all of those experiences, the way I think about it ties back to my OCD and how, you know, what it does to my life. There's a lot of depictions in pop culture and media mm -hmm. of OCD, and I think it can be easy to think of it as something it's not. Would you mind giving yes. like, a definition? All right. Yeah, the media representations are, they're kind of caricatures. Um, they're not like totally off base but they also get a lot of important things wrong and, uh, and also like the way OCD is used colloquially is like you know people who like their stuff organized and clean and like like to clean their houses are like oh I'm so OCD like I really like to keep my kitchen clean I'm like that that's not true OCD because like OCD is a mental illness and you know a mental illness is defined as a condition that causes a person distress like it's impacting their life negatively and they have distress related to their experience and that's why it's an illness like people who just like keeping their kitchen clean because it makes them happy like that's not an illness right. so the way OCD is used is um usually not accurate so yeah to explain how it, I experience it um as the name would suggest, there are two components. There are the obsessions and then the compulsions, and they tend to be related as a cause and effect type of thing. So obsessions will be when your mind fixates on certain ideas or concepts or worries or anxieties, usually, and you'll have this thought and then it will nag at you and you can't get it out of your head and like you're literally obsessing about it like it's causing you distress and anxiety this thought or set of thoughts or whatever it may be um and they're really like just ruining your day and in an attempt to um like alleviate these obsessions and make them go away people will engage in compulsions which are behaviors or actions or something that they do in in real life i guess not in their heads um like an action that will relieve the anxiety that the obsession creates so this way they are related someone will have an obsession and it will cause them a lot of distress and in order to try to get rid of it they will do an action or set of actions multiple times over and over to try to relieve it those negative coping mechanisms that you mentioned yeah. at the beginning would you consider those compulsions definitely i mean the way that mental health is i guess like diagnosed and treated and conceptualized in the psychology community i guess they tend to break it up very cleanly and make these categories like you know the dsm-5 like gives a diagnosis and a list of symptoms but in real or at least an experience in my life it's way messier than that it's like I'll have OCD, but then I'll have symptoms of depression because, you know, the OCD is ruining my life. So then the therapist will be like, oh, you have depression. I'm like, well, like, I'm, I'm depressed, but I don't think I have depression. And then, right. like, the eating disorder thing, I definitely have disordered eating symptoms. But, like, if I go to a psychologist, they're not going to say, like, oh, you have an eating disorder and nothing else. They're going to be like, oh, like, your OCD is forcing you to have these extremely disordered behaviors surrounding food. But what's really going on is that you have OCD and then, like, from the outside stuff you're doing is it's an eating disorder but it's like that's not it do you know what I'm trying to say yeah no I totally get what you say and I'll agree that mm -hmm. it's not cut and dry like everyone's different mm -hmm. and it's not easy to put in a box 
and you're not yeah. going to find your diagnosis, you know, neatly written out on a piece of paper. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I hope everyone knows that just because you said you can't go to a psychologist and have them say you have an eating disorder, uh, like that doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not valid. Oh, oh, yeah. I was definitely not trying to imply that. Oh, no, I don't um. think you are. I just wanted to <laughs> hit it home for the listeners because I know myself and a lot of people I know struggle with feeling valid in their disorders as fucked up as that sounds yeah yeah they feel like if they don't have the validation from a professional then they're not bad enough they have nothing to worry Mm -hmm. about I mean all the validation you need is the way you experience it in your own head in your own life you know like if if you are experiencing these symptoms and they're causing you distress and they're interfering with your life like you're disordered enough like (laughs) you check that box so, so yeah, how yeah. old were you when you received the diagnosis for OCD? Probably like late middle school, like uh, 13-ish. Um, that's around when I started seeking mental health treatment. Um, so since I was a young child, I've always had OCD. Like I was born with it. I, I started experiencing symptoms pretty much like as far back as my memory goes. Like I, I was an OCD child too. And like, so my entire life. What, um, what does that look like in a child? Oh, I was actually like thinking about this earlier when I was like coming home from work. I was like, OK, I need to like give concrete examples of what I experience. Um, so <laughs> no this is something that I pulled out of my memory box. So when I was uh, a young child, probably like, I don't know, five, six, seven years old, I in my bedroom, I had this rug and the rug had a pattern, like a floral pattern, um, you know, just like nice things that you put in the kids room. It has some flowers, it had some stems and leaves and they were nice and curly and colorful. Great. And I also had like a bunch of toys that were like animal figurines. So just like kids toys. Yeah. And something I would spend hours doing is taking my figurines and arranging them on the carpet, like within the patterns, like, you know, the elephant goes on this petal of this flower and then the tiger goes on this leaf in this particular orientation and like in this part of the leaf. And then, you know, I'll take the eagle and put it in the middle of this flower right here. So I arranged everything extremely neatly and I had like a very precise, definite way of arranging everything they had to go in a certain order in a certain facing a certain way you know everything had to be perfect and then I'd like arrange everything and then take it apart and then arrange it again and this in the same way in the same procedure and then take it apart and then arrange it again and I would like that that was how I played as a child Um, I'd spend hours doing that what would happen if that arrangement was disrupted oh I'd throw a fit (laughs) (laughs) okay because I know a lot of kids, you know, play that way, like they'll arrange things a certain way or order things a certain way. But I guess the difference between that and OCD is that for you, it was a bigger deal. Yeah, I mean, or like an obsession, you would say. Yeah, because I was experiencing a lot of anxiety surrounding it. It wasn't just like, this is how I like it to be. But it's like, if it's not this way, bad things will happen. If it's not this way, like, I will freak out, like I'll have insurmountable anxiety, I'll like panic, I'll you know, have a the temper tantrum. Like it was really distressing <laughs> as a child. Parents yeah. notice? They noticed that something was wrong and that I was a weird child, but they're they're not educated on these topics, so they're just like, well, that's just how she is. <laughs> Were you eventually able to articulate this anxiety to them or did you have to like did they take you to see a professional first? Um, it wasn't them precisely. The when I I started seeing a therapist when I was thirteen, um, eighth grade, and it's because a teacher noticed my like really uh, disruptive compulsions, um, the way I'd like arrange things on my desk and like move things around, um, and you know my teacher, I suppose, recognized the symptoms and referred me to the school psychologist. Who then, um, you know, just talked to me a little bit and like, yeah, that's like very much OCD. Well, it must have been pretty obvious if, you know, it was enough to make a teacher notice. Yeah, well, I also wasn't hiding it. (laughs) Okay. And that's really cool that she did notice because I I would consider Mm -hmm. that a less common, at least Mm -hmm. it's common, but I guess like not enough Mm -hmm. people know the symptoms if they were looking at it in the face. Oh, yeah, yeah. This teacher was a very, a very good teacher. She was very nice to me and understanding. Okay, so you went um, to see the school counselor, and um, yeah. how, did, how did you feel about that? Were you afraid? Wow, that's actually an interesting question. I don't think so. I think I knew I needed help because, like I've been repeating throughout this interview, it's like 
you know, if I was doing all these things and they made me feel good and it was fun, then that would that would not exactly be a disorder, you know, that just yeah. be like, <laughs> you know, fun hobbies, arranging things. I love it. But like it was causing me a lot of distress and like mental anguish because I just like I have to do these things and I can't control it. Like this is happening against my will and I'm suffering while doing it. So I was not having a good time. Um, which is where, like, the depressive symptoms come in because, like, if I feel like I'm not in control of my actions and not in control of my thoughts and it's distressing, I'm not going to be happy, you know? Like, it's really hard to be happy when this is happening in your head yeah. and in your life and it's not in your control. So I, I was definitely, like, down a lot. Yeah, but going back to the, the therapy, um, that was when I started therapy and... I have been in therapy every year since. And how many therapists have you had? Maybe like 10. Um, okay. Every year or two, they'd switch. So like I had one in eighth grade and then in ninth and 10th grade in high school, I had one. And then 11th and 12th grade in high school, I had a different one. And then in college, I had two or three different ones. And now I am um, seeing like a, a whole different one. <laughs> like in, in high school and college, I used my like student uh, status, I guess, because they provided free counseling to students. To this day, I think like it's extremely important to have mental health professionals available to students free of charge. Oh yeah, it's like it's one of the major responsibilities of an educational institution. I think like you got to look out for your students' well-being, and that's not just like you know are they getting their homework done, but it's like are they suicidal? <laughs> like because yeah. some of them probably are, and you better take care of that. Yeah, um, <laughs> for sure. I, I totally agree. I was lucky enough to be able to take advantage of the mental health services at my at my various schools. And then, you know, I'm not in school anymore, but I have health insurance. Thank God. Like that. That's a privilege to have health insurance. Yeah. Um, and I take advantage of it by seeing a therapist. And it's covered. Uh, most of it is covered by my insurance. I have a copay, but it's, you know, it's not nearly as bad as it would be without insurance. So I do consider myself blessed that I have access to services and resources to help me out because if I didn't have these resources, who knows where I'd be. It has genuinely helped. Like I I owe my life to some of these therapists. Like they're really good people and I'm really grateful. I'm really happy that you had access to that. What kind of mm -hmm. treatment have the therapists suggested for your OCD over the years? Well, treatments in general for OCD tend to be either medication or therapy or a combination of both. Really, like the, the best is a combination of both. Um, I am actually not on medication and never have been. Um, but is, is I that do... for a particular reason? Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just I'm wary of side effects uh, because the, the medications that you would use to treat it are SSRIs and SNRIs. And um, those have side effects and you know you got to consider the the cost benefit for you as an individual because like for a lot of people the benefit of taking SSRIs far outweighs the side effects and for them it's worth it and necessary and you know that that's awesome if it's working for them I am doing a really good job managing my condition with therapy alone so I feel like I don't need medication at this point is how I feel. I, I don't want to have to experience those side effects. What would you say is really common for people with OCD to take? Let's see. Um, my friend was taking Lexapro. Okay. And that, that's um, an antidepressant, right? Yeah, that's an SR, oh, SSRI. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I should know we that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that class of medications is used for depression and anxiety and anxiety disorders. Oh, I should give like the you know, the rundown on the classification of OCD. So it is yeah. classified under the category of anxiety disorders, of which there are typically, like, if you know, if you're a psychologist, there are five anxiety disorders. There's generalized anxiety, OCD, panic disorder, PTSD, and social phobia. Okay. And those are like the five general categories. And a lot of people will have more than one category or, um, you know, experience different categories to different degrees and, you know, because it's not all black and white, but right. that's how psychologists break it down. So which categories have you experienced? Uh, mostly just OCD. I've had panic attacks in the past, but I they were always kind of like caused by OCD and its complications. So I probably like, you know, my, my psychologist does not diagnose me with panic disorder despite experiencing some panic attacks. So that's how 
another example of how it's not black and white. So you don't take medication yourself? No, I do not. I, has... I do therapy. Yeah, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> so I were like, so I feel like I'm so excited to ask you all these questions. I'm like getting ahead of myself. <laughs> oh, I should also, yeah, before we talk about therapy, I'm remembering one more thing. Um, the different types of OCD and oh that this goes back to your um your question earlier about the stereotypes in media oh yeah um, I was gonna ask you what if you know, yeah if you had examples I totally of... like didn't answer that question <laughs> like uh, I'm gonna answer it now <laughs> okay go for it I'm gonna stop interrupting okay sorry um no I'm interrupting you I'm sorry oh my god <laughs> we're so bad at this it's, it's okay hopefully your listeners will find it endearing <laughs> all right so types of OCD um generally people will have like a a general theme of their obsessions and it tends to be different between people so there are people who who you'd call like the germaphobe uh classification where they're like their obsessions center on uh germs and dirt and like cleanliness in that way like sterility um the stereotype there being like the person who constantly washes their hands or like constantly uses hand sanitizer because they're afraid of the germs and like they won't shake hands with people because they're afraid of the germs like that's that's one type of ocd another one is what i have which is organization and symmetry and the arrangement of items in space where obsessions center around how items are arranged and you know where they need to go and like how you can manipulate them with your hands and you know just like organization type obsessions um another one is um people who have worrisome thoughts about um, like taboo topics like violence or sex or religion they'll have like invasive intrusive thoughts about I was gonna ask isn't that yeah does that usually mean there's some OCD going on or is that like a separate thing some people with OCD have intrusive thoughts as a symptom um, I guess that's what I meant like I guess intrusive yeah. thoughts can be a symptom for many different mental illnesses yeah yeah but yeah, definitely, especially this like subcategory um, where that is characterized by intrusive thoughts about like violence and sex and religion. I don't know. I, I read a, a short story, I guess, a while ago that where the main character was this guy who like had like vivid, recurring, uncontrollable, and distressing fantasies about stabbing his wife to death. Um, and it just like totally ruined his life because he didn't actually want to stab her to death, but it was just like, he couldn't stop thinking about it and it drove him crazy. And then he had to like go on a road trip to get away from his wife. Cause he was afraid that he was going to stab his wife. And so like, oh my that's, God. that it was a, it was a work of fiction, but it actually did a, I guess, not awful job of depicting this subtype of OCD where like you have these thoughts and they distress you and they're, you know, about violence or sex or religion. Um, which are taboo topics in our society, which is also an example of how society contributes to the manifestation of OCD, because at least in this subtype, um, the topics that society considers taboo are the ones that the brain fixates on and drives the sufferer crazy with. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm sure in a, in a parallel universe in a different society that had different taboos, um, people with this brain disorder would focus on those taboos and not ours, you know? I was going to ask that. Yeah. What role society had in that? That's really interesting. Yes. <laughs> okay, so what kind of things can you do to combat those symptoms in therapy? Yeah. Um, a lot of what we do there is talk about what I'm experiencing and how to kind of react to it and like answer it in my own head, especially when it comes to behaviors, because, you know, like I explained at the top of the show, I have like the whole like obsessions of this thought and I'm fixating and it's causing me to stress. I need to do something to alleviate the stress that's building up with this thought. So I do an action and the action is a compulsion. And sometimes they're pretty benign. Um, like what? For and then, example? Yeah, like one that I have currently is that um, I have a, a backpack that I take to and from work with me and every item in my backpack needs to go in a certain pocket in a certain order. So every morning I need to load my backpack, put every item exactly where it needs to be. They need to grow in the correct order and at the correct rate. And I need to organize everything. And then when I unpack my backpack, I need to take everything out in the same order, like, you know, the reverse of that order. Yeah. And everything has its place and everything needs to be arranged just so all the labels have to be facing the 
front. And then in my mind, it'll be like, they have to go in this way. And if they don't, I'll lose my shit. Like, I, I will freak out. Like, something bad will happen. Something existentially bad will happen if I don't organize everything exactly the way it needs to go. And then if I am, I like, packing my backpack and I feel like, wait, I did something wrong. I have to unpack it and then I have to repack it. And then, like, it's repacked. I'm like, wait, is everything in the correct order? Like, then I have to unpack it and repack it again. And then I can do this over and over. And it's just, like, this repetitive cycle of anxiety oh, um and so i'm like exhausting. losing yeah i'm like i'm losing time i'm losing energy but i just have to i have to do it until i feel like i've done it right because if i haven't done it right my brain goes like something awful will happen like the world will end you're going to you know your loved ones are all going to die they're going to drop dead if you don't organize your backpack the correct way like going... that's that's what's going through my head i was going to ask about that is it just like a vague feeling that something bad's going to happen or in your mind you really believe something bad will happen i don't really believe it um okay. yeah that's that's part of what therapy taught me i think as a child i really truly believed that something bad was going to happen and that's why i did it but through therapy i've been able to like talk through it and be like you know what like this is how anxiety tricks you it tells you that something bad is going to happen but it's lying this is something that's going on in your head and you can't control it and it's it's a brain system gone haywire that's part of what therapy has helped me because what we do in therapy is we look at these behaviors that I that I do and then categorize them like you know are they hurtful or are they not somewhere in between like the packing my backpack you know it's annoying and it takes time but at the end of the day it's pretty benign um, like I'm not hurting anyone and I'm not hurting myself well there you... are some compulsions that Sorry. are worse <laughs> I was gonna say like yes there are some compulsions that are undoubtedly worse and we will talk about those but yeah. also you know, it can hurt you if you do it every day. And let's say like it keeps you from getting to work on time. And if that happens mm -hmm. enough, you know, you could receive a corrective action or even lose your job. And mm -hmm. that's that's very detrimental to your life. And I think it's these little mm -hmm. examples you keep listing, just adding up and interfering with your quality of life. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to hear that, I'll, the the dorm room door lock thing, um, my senior year, especially of college, I lived in a dorm room and I, you know, my door locked. So every morning before I went to class, I'd have to, you know, lock my door like a normal person. So I would leave my room and then lock the door and then walk down the hallway. And then at the end of the hallway, I'd be like, wait, is the door locked? And I'd have to walk back to my room, unlock the door, relock it, walk down the hallway. And then I got to the end of the hallway. It's like, wait, is my door locked? So I have to go back and check the lock. And I do that like 10, 15, 20 times before class. And I was late to class like pretty often. Yeah, that adds Because, up. I mean, I was lucky that the class in question... Um, I had a, like a pretty lenient professor um, and you know this is also college so it's not like high school where they take attendance right so I didn't in this particular case I didn't actually get in trouble but I did show up to class late and it was 100% as a, as a result of my compulsions I just had to check the lock and I every time I walked away I'd like be anxious I'm like what if the lock is what if it's undone like what if my door isn't locked like what if my stuff gets stolen what if I don't know, like something's going to happen. I have to check the lock. Did you feel like your OCD got worse as you got through college? Um, Actually, no, the reverse. It was worse at the beginning and it got better over time. Okay. Did any of your professors know about it or was that something you kept private? Generally, I did not tell people. In I mean, I, I tell my close friends and I actually did have some advisors in college who I was very close with. I went to a small private college where it was very easy to become friends with your professors. And nice. I did. And so I had some professors who I consider my mentors and who I still I'm still in contact with today. And yeah, I, I did share a little bit about my my mental health struggles with them. And they were all very understanding. Like, again, I have had so many supportive, understanding and like, just really good adults in my life growing up that have really helped me. Like, you can imagine an alternate universe version of myself who didn't have this support. Mm -hmm. And like, who knows how shitty my life would be if I, if I was even still alive, like not to be dramatic, but like... No, totally. <laughs> um, I think it's important to not take that for granted. Yeah, exactly. I'm so thankful for it. Yeah. And the fact that you're recognizing it, I know a lot of people who do struggle with mental illness feel like they're alone, like they could in reality be surrounded by people who love them and care about them. But sometimes mm. when you're in the throes of a mental illness, it's easy to forget. Yeah, yeah. Part of the the suffering is feeling like you're alone and like there's nothing that can be done. But a lot of time, if you reach out, someone will listen. Like, the world is full of good people. 
not everyone is going to want to help you, but there are some people like, you know, mental health professionals whose job it is to help you or teachers or professors or advisors who like they're in that position because they want to help students. And, you know, that goes for young adults who are students. But, you know, like if you're an older adult with a job, like there are still mental health professionals. There's always someone. There are family members and friends like there are support groups for your particular condition. Like rarely is there a person who truly has nothing. Yeah, I mean, even online communities are so powerful. I mean, obviously, yeah, exactly. we met through one, but, yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of help available in different channels that never existed before. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if you're not taking advantage of those, I mean, it, it can be really hard when you're, like, depressed, for instance. You know, sometimes it's impossible to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's just, it's... you know, the nature of the beast, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had a question for you. Mm -hmm. So because OCD is so misrepresented Mm -hmm. in the media, and um, I would even say trivialized. Oh, yes, for sure. Have you ever felt like that prevented you from asking for help? Um, No. Or or telling people about it because you thought they would misunderstand, I guess? Yes, absolutely. I I do try to keep it on the down low most of the time because I do think people are going to misunderstand what it is that I'm going through um so yeah I definitely keep it quiet because of the misrepresentation but as far as asking for help goes if if it's somebody who like knows what they're talking about like a mental health professional or an online support community they're not going to misunderstand like those are the people who whose job it is whose passion it is to take you seriously right. so um it's never prevented me from reaching out but it has prevented me from being open what are some like main things you wish that people knew about ocd that they don't um i wish they knew that it was involuntary i think one of the perceptions that people have is that these are just people who like being clean or like you know who maybe maybe they understand that like this they feel the need like that it's extremely necessary to be clean. But I don't think they realize that people who are doing these compulsions, it's it's because in their head, like there's something going on and it's distressing and it's ruining their lives. And the compulsions are just the physical manifestation of the turmoil in their head. At work, I have a desk and it's within a like a pod of other coworkers. And like, they can see that my desk is extremely organized. Like they, they've seen me sterilize my bench top um, every week. Like, you know, they, they see these symptoms, but I think that they think that I'm just a really clean person. I'm just yeah. like, extremely organized. You know, I, I, I'm, I, everything is very organized and clean and neat and that they probably just assume that's the kind of person I am. But in reality, I'm like, no, no, no. Like it needs to be like this or because anxiety. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I w- used to consider myself one of those people who would a, you know, notice people do that type of thing and just think to myself, wow, they're really anal or like, you know, (laughs) I'm also guilty of, you know, performing certain tasks like that and then joking around and just saying, oh, I have OCD, don't mind me, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think it's something that not a lot of people take seriously. And I think it's important to prevent the spread of misinformation yeah about that and like to keep educating people like that's one of the reasons i love this podcast is because i get to uh, learn about so many different perspectives and topics that i'd never was introduced to before yeah that's so valuable just being aware and being educated yeah i mean the education really never ends oh yeah for sure and i think we are entering like an age where mental health is starting to be talked about more and i think that's awesome but there are lots of misrepresentations still out there yeah um do you have any examples of like ocd in the media like good or bad that's a pretty good question i'm probably not the best person for that because (laughs) i actually don't watch tv or tv shows or movies or listen to popular music or um (laughs) i mean i do know that uh i think there's a game show called the price is right that might be it um where the the host has ocd and his like trademark is that he gives contestants fist bumps instead of handshake and he's just like oh fist bump whenever they go for a handshake and then off the air he's admitted it's because he has germaphobe ocd and he is afraid of the germs on their hands so he'll only fist bump his contestants so that's an example of a real person with ocd and how it's impacting their life although you know on the on his game show like i'm it's it's not a thing you know like he just that's his thing he fist bumps like that's how he is so like and no one really realizes that like it's because he has ocd i work in molecular biology and i typically work with bacteria and like cellular organisms so if i was a germaphobe i i would probably 
I, I don't even want to think about it. Like I work with bacteria and I'm not afraid of them. I actually kind of like them. They're they're pretty fascinating little buggers. I was gonna. And, uh, that was actually yeah. a, a point on my uh, list of stuff to ask you was how it affects your work. Oh well, how it affects my work. Um, I think being as organized as I am actually makes for a great scientist. Um, I definitely think that choosing to become a scientist was absolutely the correct career choice for me. And it's half personality. I mean, you know, mostly personality. It's it's about what interests me. And there's a whole bunch of things in choosing a career. But I, I will not deny that um, the fact that I am extremely organized um, definitely helps, helps I, me. Okay, that's something that I actually... I'm really curious about what your mm-hmm. opinion is of this. I've always kind of disliked the term mental illness because it implies mm-hmm. something just inherently bad. It's interesting that you you said that, that, you know, it, it can be almost a strength. I don't know, more like part of your personality or part of who you are rather than a disability. But on the other hand, it is absolutely a disability. And like people have gone on disability for their mental illness. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it's interesting to me to just kind of look at it from different perspectives. Yeah, there's there's no denying that um, my life experience includes OCD. And as a, as a result of that, I have characteristics that you know, make me good at certain things. Yeah. That does bring up like an interesting debate. What's the line between neuro- neurodiversity and mental illness? Exactly. So the the way I think about it is that um, if, if someone is mentally ill, it's called that because they experience distress in relation to their characteristics. Okay. Like, you know, you have a person and they have certain characteristics um, because of the way their brain chemistry is, because of the way their brain structure is, maybe because of the way they were raised. And, you know, for whatever reason, they have a set of characteristics. Now, if if they're just chilling and they they have no distress and they're just, you know, this is how I am, it makes me happy and there's no problem with it, then great, they're just neuro- neurodiverse. I have so much trouble with that word. <laughs> I've um, never heard that word before. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it's it's one of the, the newer the newer. Uh, words i feel like we need a t-shirt i'm not (laughs) i'm not sick i'm neurodiverse (laughs) yeah maybe um but yeah so like if if it if it's not distressing then that's great if it is however impacting their life negatively if they're experiencing distress or negative consequences of their behavior or thoughts that's probably where we'd call it an illness right because they they feel like something's not right and they want it to change Right now, that is my working definition, my working difference between the two. I think that's really important to talk about, too, because I want, mm-hmm. like, you can try to embrace it or you can try to get help. But, like, what point do you pursue either path, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's not all black and white either. Like, you were, I'm sorry, you were, mm-hmm. let's go back to your, to how it affects your work. <laughs> um, so you said you're very organized at work and you make a great scientist. Mm-hmm. Um are there any ways it's affected you negatively? Thus far, not really. Because, um, like I said before, I'm, I'm very lucky that the type of OCD I have is about organization and not germophobia. Because that means that I can be a molecular biologist and I can work with bacteria and microbes and I'm not scared of them and... I'm not preoccupied with them. And I mean, I'm sure if I did have germaphobe OCD, then I wouldn't have chosen that career choice. Right. Um, At this point, I'm I'm pretty good at managing it because I have had so many years of therapy. And um, when we'll go back to like the the things I've done in therapy to help me, um, because we were in the middle of that one before we went on tangent. Um, I love the tangents, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, oh, shit. What was that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, the way it's affected me at work. So actually like not really because i'm managing it pretty well and the way it manifests at least in the real world i mean you know in in the outside world that's not in my head is that i'm just extremely organized and you know i never lose anything i I never make messes i don't um i'm like very procedurally oriented i i'm very good at following steps in a certain order and doing it the same way every time which is actually like a massive skill if you're going to be a scientist you need to know how to follow protocol do it the same way the same way every time um reproducible results you know stuff like that so that has actually been an asset Uh, i'm very good at keeping data um and organizing it and uh, manipulating the data i mean that maybe that's just like 
a skill of mine and not OCD, but I'm good at numbers. Yeah, thus far, it has not impacted my career. It has impacted my education in that if I'm late to class, um, you know, you're you're missing that 10 minutes of lecture at the beginning and then maybe you'll miss something important. So it's yeah. affected me in that way. And also that like, especially in middle and high school, there were times when I was so preoccupied with my obsessions and compulsions that I just like could not focus and I couldn't do my homework and I couldn't study because this was taking all of my time and mental energy. So, I mean, if I have had negative impacts on my life, it's it's one in the distress that I experience and two, in the amount of time and energy it saps from the rest of my life. So I want to talk about relationships. Yeah. So um, has, uh, first of all, are you in a relationship right now? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, do they know about your OCD? Oh, yeah, very, very much so. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a girlfriend and okay. she and I were friends before we started dating and she definitely knew about my OCD because... I, I don't like go, um, you know, shouting it from the rooftops, but if, yeah. if I become close enough with someone, I'll tell them, uh, as, like, this is a fact of my life and, you know, this will explain some of my behaviors and it'll also help you respect my boundaries, I guess. Cause like, if I do have everything organized on my desk in a certain way and someone comes and messes it up, like I will be angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, don't, don't move my shit. So like, I have to tell people like, you know, it's, it's really important to me that this is a certain way. Please just let me have that. And, you know, it's the reason is because OCD and like, I'm sorry this impacts you, but like, that's just the reality of my life. So please respect it in X, Y, Z ways. And they're always okay with it. Like, I've never had someone who who was a dick about it. Um, I was going to ask, like, if you've ever um, struggled hmm. with people not understanding or I mean, Hmm. I know you said you had a problem sharing with people in the first place. You know, sometimes people don't understand, but I've never had anyone be a dick about it, that's which good. is, good. yeah, that's nice. Knock but, on wood. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so for relationships, yeah, my girlfriend definitely knew before we started dating. Um, like when we were already friends for years before we started dating, so nice. we knew each other pretty well. We had already like laid all of our dirty laundry on the table before we even started dating. So um, yeah, she's very understanding and very supportive and loves me anyway, which I'm extremely thankful for. How how are some ways that you suggest people approach OCD with a loved one? Um, the first thing you should do is ask, you know, like, how does this manifest in your life? And like, you know, not just like, what kind do you have and what are your symptoms? But yeah. like, you you have this condition, like, what what is it that you are fixating on on any given day? And if if it has something to do with me or the way I interact with you, like, let me know so I can be sensitive to it. Definitely listening to someone and being sympathetic and being sensitive to their their accommodations if if they need any and some people might not need accommodations and some might need them um it depends on the person um and you know not accommodation like oh my god when i say that word i think like you know every building should have a ramp for wheelchair users because it's an accommodation for their disability and like that's kind of what i mean and also kind of not what i mean like what i mean is um like for me uh, my girlfriend knows that when we go on trips together and we're staying in a hotel room, I need like one part of the room, like one small part, one dresser or whatever, dresser top. And I, I need that space and I will arrange my stuff the way it needs to be arranged. And that is my space and that is within my control. And I, I just need to have a, a little area, a physical area in my life at all times that I feel like I control. And that makes me feel safe. And that lets me channel all of my anxious energy and my like organizational uh needs I guess right. I I'm able to at this point because I've like done so much therapy and self-awareness and practice is that I'm able to kind of compartmentalize my uh, obsessions and compulsions and I can channel them into a benign uh vehicle i guess which usually ends up being like when we go somewhere i need a a small physical space that is mine and i will arrange my items within this physical space in the way that i feel like they need to be arranged and this is how it's going to be and no one else touch it like this is my space this is you know my two by two foot area of space where all of my items are that is mine do not move it everything in there is exactly how it needs to be and if you move it i will be anxious about it and then i will have to fix it immediately because i cannot do anything else unless this area is perfect. So yeah, my girlfriend knows that. Whenever we go on a trip, I'm like, this dresser is mine. And she's like, okay. And then I arrange all my stuff on the dresser, the way it needs to be arranged, and she doesn't touch it, and we go along with our lives. That's amazing. <laughs> um, when we talked earlier, you did mention the car- bleh, compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, could you elaborate a little more on that? 
Would you consider yeah. it a, a coping method? Um, yeah, or... I, I guess you could call it a coping method. It's, it's a way to manage yourself, you know, because so I, I should go back to like how cognitive behavioral therapy has led me to be able to live with this. So it's there's a lot about like being aware of what it is you're doing and why being able to stop in a moment of intense emotion or intense energy and ask like, wait, what is going on here? What are your thoughts? Why are you thinking these thoughts? How are they impacting your behavior? Um, and just like take a moment and think about this. Um, and it really helps me. It, like when I'm having these very irrational thoughts, like, you know, if if my, I don't know, my pencil case is not in exactly this corner of my desk, then all of my loved ones will drop dead. And then like I'm having that worry, that anxiety, that obsession. And then I can wait, be like, wait, stop think about this is that rational um why do you think this why do you think that all your family members will drop dead do you think that's actually true or is that just something that anxiety is telling you and think about it rationally and game it out in your head if this pencil case is a few inches to the left is that going to kill anyone I, I don't think so so just like take a deep breath and and try to just try to manage yourself like that that's me talking to myself um, in my own head. Cause... And this all happens in the span of, like, a few seconds. Yeah, like, a minute. Yeah. Just, you know, it, it takes about as long as it took for me to say it out loud, because I am saying the words in my head. Because that, yeah. like, the focus, the awareness, the self-awareness, and the, not really meditation, but it's, like, meditative, where I'm, like, being extremely self-aware and looking at my own thoughts from the most separate, rational perspective that I can manage at that moment I take a deep breath and I just you know I talk to myself I talk myself down from that ledge and over time I've gotten better at it it does take a I, lot I, of practice to do that oh yes yeah this is the result of literal years of like therapy like I started therapy when I was 13 I'm 23 now I've I've been in therapy therapy for 10 years working on this and it's definitely gotten better over time because I have become more skilled in managing myself and managing my emotions. Because, like, ultimately, it just boils down to what's happening in my own head. Yeah. And sometimes the obsessions are all-consuming, and I literally cannot think of anything else because I'm just, like, so consumed by what's going on in my head and I can't handle it. But over time, those become less and less often as I get better. Those events become less and less frequent as I get better at like taking a step back and just talking myself down and you know just self-awareness like it takes th this is how I personally have learned to manage myself and you know this approach might not be one size fits all no. um but this is what has worked for me and cognitive behavioral therapy has really worked for me and as just feeling like I have someone who will listen to me yeah, like part of really going important. to therapy is it's like I wouldn't say I'm friends with my therapist but like she feels friendly to me like I go in there and I, we sit down and she pays attention to me and I tell her what I'm going through and she nods and like you know she she believes me and and cares about me and is is taking me seriously and then lately what I've been talking about in therapy is how my self image like my idea of my own body is impacting my self-esteem, I guess. And I'll tell her, like, I have, you know, quite the exercise habit where I feel like I need to exercise for two to three hours every single day or else I will just instantly gain 100 pounds overnight. I will wake up and, you know, and be a contestant for my 600-pound life. And oh, uh, that's just what's going to happen. <laughs> OCD combined with eating disorders is just oh, yeah. a recipe for disaster. I was telling this to my therapist a few days ago and she was like, wait, like, think about this. Think about the, the calories. So, okay, you know that 3,500 calories is one pound of fat. And, you know, like, let's say your workout burns X amount of calories. Now, let's say you don't do that workout. So you, that X amount of calories, that's how many calories are still in your body. Is that 3,500? And I'll be like, no, it's not. And she's like, so, so how many calories does it take to gain 100 pounds? And I'll be like, you know, multiply 3,500 by um, 100. And that's like 350000. Um, I think that's 350,000. Um, so she'll be like, okay, so the, the calories you're not burning by exercising is X. 
And then in order to gain 100 pounds, that's uh, 350,000 calories. Like, let's let's look at those numbers. Is that rational? I'll be like, no, it's not rational. And she's like, okay, now every time you have that thought, do it in your own head. You, I don't need to tell you anymore. You now know this. And now talk yourself down from that fear by doing that rationalization in your own head. And that's one of the tactics. It's the healing power of science. <laughs> yeah. That was really, really soothing to listen to, actually. Yeah, it's because your mind it's can the rational. Take, yeah, yeah, your mind can take facts and just bend them completely out of proportion, and you don't even know what's real anymore. So sometimes it does help having someone just straight up tell you the facts. Yes, exactly. Uh, I had something else I was going to ask you, but I've... oh yeah, so this might be kind of um, ignorant of me to ask is is ocd something that you can quote unquote recover from or is it something you think you'll live with for the rest of your life uh generally no there's no cure you can manage it um and you can yeah you can manage it which i think that i am and management is on a spectrum like you can be better or worse at management um you can use a combination of medication and therapy to lessen symptoms and some people might even get to a point where they have no symptoms and that's awesome but that doesn't mean they'll have no symptoms for the rest of their life like it's not gone it's just being managed you know exactly doing the techniques and behaviors and thought patterns or whatever it takes for you to lessen the severity of your symptoms to remove the distress from your symptoms um to like stop behaviors if that's relevant for you just like all of this management that you can do to reduce the negative impact that your mental illness has on your life. And that's a really worthy endeavor for your life is just to constantly be trying to figure out how to live better. Like, I mean, I've been throwing around that idea in my head recently whenever I feel suicidal. It's just like maybe the point of life is to just keep learning about how to make yourself a little bit happier and how to make others around you a little bit happier. You know, maybe there's no better purpose to life than that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, as long as you wake up and try to make every day a tiny bit better than the last, then that's progress and that's valuable. Totally agree. So going back to the whole food issue with you. Yes. You said that affected you pretty strongly and still affects you pretty strongly. How would you tie that in with your OCD more specifically? Um, So the disordered eating symptoms I experience are driven by organization and cleanliness and i guess it's like closer to ortho maybe although i do count calories can you define Um, that for people who might not know oh yeah just like orthorexia in quotes is uh i guess a, a type of eating disorder that is characterized by the all-consuming desire to eat only like the quote-unquote cleanest or purest or best foods, um, which may or may not be coupled with a desire for thinness. Uh, it often manifests in athletes, um, which I was. I was an. I mean, I am and always was an athlete my entire life. I, I know with eating disorders, a common theme is the desire for control, the desire yes. to be perfect. It, it seems to me like there's a lot of common themes in OCD as well. Oh, yeah. It's such a cliche, but it's about control. Like, at least for me, it's 100% about control because I've been dancing around it. But like how how it impacts my eating habits is that like, you know, there is a an array of safe foods that I have and I need to eat these foods and I can't eat any other foods and I have to eat them in this combination and I have to eat them at this type of time of day. I have to eat them like in this order. I start my morning with clementines. Um, you know, the delightful little citrus fruits. I love them. Um, and they have to be the first thing I eat every morning. They just have to. I have to eat 100 calories worth of clementines every single morning. What if they're and, not? Oh, I, I mean, either I have a meltdown, um, but, you know, that's how it used to be. But now it's more like I, I will talk myself down from him. Like, well, you know, what you're really worried about here is vitamin C. So let's eat uh, another food that is rich in vitamin C. And then you can I can kind of like assuage that anxiety is like what if I don't get enough vitamin c well no because you're getting it from this other food and so just just shut the fuck up (laughs) (laughs) um so like if I do eat over my my limit on certain days I can like talk myself down from that um I've gotten better at that but like I I have rules surrounding food and I have these rules because I feel like if if I do something outside of these rules then I'll get anxiety and I'll get this obsession like what if xyz happens like it um, seems like eating disorder is not necessarily like a symptom of the OCD but rather like a channel to pour it into yeah I have talked about this with my therapist a lot and I wonder that if we lived in a society 
that did not have this like bizarre obsession with food and weight then my OCD might not ha- might never have clamped onto that, you know? Yeah. Like, I might be spending all of my time and attention trying to control my life in another way, and in, not in a food way or a weight way, but just, like, I don't know, like, if our society was obsessed with, like, oh, I can't even think of an example, like, hairstyles. Yeah. Like you have yeah. to have this kind of hair, and it has to look like this, and it has to be this length. I'd be, like, my OCD would just grab right onto that and be like, let's go, bitch. Like, yeah, your brain... Is- your brain latches onto whatever it can find, whatever yeah. helps soothe the compulsions or obsessions, yeah. rather. Yeah, both. Yeah, it yeah. soothes the obsessions through the channel of compulsions. But do you watch The Twilight Zone? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> oh man. Well, first of all, do you know what it is? Oh yes, I do. Okay, there's this episode where this patient is in a hospital having just had a major surgery on her face and a nurse walks into the room and you see that the nurse's face is a pig's face and the patient like leaps up from the bed and starts running through the hospital the patient by the way is a very beautiful woman Mm -hmm. and everyone in the hospital just has a pig face and um the patient at the very end of the episode she looks in the mirror and she sees that she's a beautiful woman and she starts screaming and writhing on the ground in terror because I guess everyone in that universe looks like a pig and like her surgery was failed and she was like uh, yeah she's not like everyone else she's ugly in their eyes I don't know I saw that when I was a kid it's kind of cheesy but my mind was blown I was like whoa how much of what I think is really beautiful is because of society yeah oh absolutely beauty standards are are culturally bound and it's it's a a result of the culture and time in which i live that i have xyz ideals in my head and then because i have ocd i'm like well i need to like exquisitely control every aspect of my life and body and mind so i have to use this as a a vehicle for control so it it all plays together like that (laughs) do you do you have any coping methods that involve letting go of control uh, no. <laughs> like, I mean, like, have you ever, like, intentionally tried to let go in, in um, as a method of, like, helping yourself? Or is that something that people with OCD do? Is that recommended? The way I think about it is that I can, if, I, if I'm on a ledge, I can try to talk myself down. Like, if I eat some hundred calories above my daily limit, I can I can look at it and be like, you know, like, okay, you were not able to 100% control every single one of your actions today, and you're you're upset about that, but it's it's not going to hurt you in, in the grand scheme of things. It's pretty meaningless. Um, like, you know, let's rationalize this, and let's talk myself down from that ledge. So I guess that's kind of letting go of control by recognizing what is essential to control and what isn't. Yeah. And maybe sometimes I can I can convince myself that maybe some sometimes some of the foods I eat or some of the exercise I do or don't do, maybe I don't need to control every single like bit of that because in the end it's actually not going to make a difference. And that's yeah. scary to say it's not going to make a difference because your whole all your thoughts revolve around that but again the power of science and logic (laughs) do you have anything else you want to add or i think we covered a lot of great stuff yeah yeah we did um i'm like sitting in my room sweating my non-existent balls off right now because (laughs) i I always turn off all the fans and like close all the windows when i record these Mm -hmm. because otherwise there would be a lot of background noise but like, my room is on the top floor of a house, and all the heat just rises up, so... Oh, yeah. I've just been sitting here talking to you, just, like, blotting my face with a tissue <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> oh, no. But yeah, oh, not- speaking of background noise, like, I, I know you probably heard some birds and airplanes, maybe. A little um, bit, a little bit. Yeah, because I'll, I'll try to edit I'm... out what I can, but also, you know, if there's okay. a few birds in the background, whatever. It's it's part yeah. of the... It's endearing, as you said earlier. <laughs> I'm I'm walking around my neighborhood and up around a, a small pond in my neighborhood, um, which is where the birds are. They're actually they're red-winged blackbirds, and they're kind of circling around my head because I think they view me as a threat. Oh, so I'm no. kind of like trying to. No, I mean they they can be aggressive. I actually one time I was biking and a red-winged blackbird, um, like 
it, it like swooped at me and kind of like pecked me once with its beak and then and then flew away. It didn't like hurt that much. That's I was like, like oh. my worst nightmare though. I'm always I always see birds swoop towards me when I'm like walking or whatever, and I always am afraid that they're gonna hit me, but then they never do. But like the fact that one of them <laughs> did hit you is kind of unsettling. But um yeah, it's it's typically the red winged blackbird. Um, they're they tend to be the most uh, aggressive of birds that a human will encounter. Fine. You know, so keep an eye out for those. So yeah, I'm just like walking around and they're kind of like circling around their nests. So I know oh, I'll just like go somewhere where their nest isn't. <laughs> okay, this episode will be accompanied by a picture of a red winged blackbird. So everyone can look <laughs> out for them. <laughs> no, yeah. for, for real though, I love how you're always posting stuff like nature facts and like oh, yes. pictures of the weather or like your the tea you're brewing at the moment. I just love that. Yeah, these are these are the small things about life that make me happy. Yeah. Part of my therapy is keeping a gratitude journal. And it's not just like, you know, I'm happy for my health. I'm happy for my friends. But it's also like, I'm, I'm happy for the flower I saw today. I'm happy yeah. for the tea I drank today. I'm happy that like, you know, this person complimented my shoes. Like just the tiny things in life that that put a little smile on your face and make you think that life is worth living. Like be grateful for those oh my and God, that's so acknowledge wholesome. them. <laughs> Ultimately, a good life is a life full of small, happy things. I 100% agree. That's another <laughs> way that society has fucked us up is that it, it, it makes you think that you have to have this big purpose in life and you have to know what you want to do and you have to have a big effect on people or I don't know. Maybe yeah. you don't have to do all that. Maybe <laughs> that's okay. Maybe you can yeah. just make like small ripples instead of like a big splash. Exactly. It's it's about knowing what brings you joy and working toward it oh, this episode is so quotable i'm just really <laughs> impressed with us well this was so much fun i really yeah. enjoy talking to you yeah, thank um, you so much yeah thank you oh my goodness <laughs> thanks for opening my eyes to the wonderful world of ocd <laughs> yeah and, and thank you for giving me a platform on which to talk about it because i i do think that it's important for people to hear stories and and to, you know, think about other people's experiences. And I also just like talking about myself. So yes, who doesn't? I appreciate that. <laughs> I, get, I get a few people who are like, oh, I, I might want to be on your podcast, but I feel like I don't have anything to say or I'm afraid of talking about myself. But no, that's the whole point. Like, yeah. please yeah. talk about yourself for hours. Like, <laughs> I want to know. And like the world needs to know, you know. <laughs> well, I hope yeah, you have awesome. a good uh, rest of your evening with your blackbirds. Thank you. Um, stay safe. All right, yeah. <laughs> Have a beautiful night. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye.